Welcome to another Charity Chat podcast. I'm Osman Mughal and I'm delighted to be speaking with Paul Vallely today. Paul is the author of Philanthropy, From Aristotle to Zuckerberg. He is a journalist and has held many roles for household names, including The Independent and The Guardian. In today's conversation, I talked to Paul about his new book, which came out in September 2020. We highlight and explore the different reasons why philanthropists give, how philanthropy is perceived differently in the UK and the US, but also further afield, and the benefits and challenges of modern-day philanthropy in solving some of the social ills we see facing our world today. We also touch on the role philanthropists have played so far in the fight against COVID-19. This episode is brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Charity People. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Today, I have the pleasure to speak with Paul Ballely, author of Philanthropy, from Aristotle to Zuckerberg. Before we go and talk about your book in a little bit more detail and the key themes that have come out of there, I think for our listeners, what would be really good is if you could provide us with a brief overview of your career and the key roles and responsibilities that you've held? Well, I've had a a dual focused career. I've been a journalist and various national newspapers uh, ending ending up on the the Independent uh, where I was a leader writer and feature writer and uh, a columnist on the Independent on Sunday. But I've also written for the Sunday Times, the New York Times, the uh, Daily Telegraph, um, the, the Guardian, I mean, the whole range of uh, different things over 30 years in journalism. Uh, but at the same time, I've also been uh, interested in uh, social justice and activist uh, um, dimensions to, to the kind of journalism that I came across. When I was um, in Ethiopia for the, to cover the famine for the Times in uh, 1984 or 5, um, I, uh, Bob Geldof got in touch with me um, to try and work out how to spend the money from live uh, the live Band Aid single, and then later from Live Aid. So I've developed an association with Geldof, which has lasted for three decades, and I've been a kind of advisor to him. Um, I've also chaired um, the development um, and lobbying and advocacy body, the um, Catholic Institute for International Relations. And I've been, uh, I've worked with Christian Aid, with CAFOD, and uh, I chaired the, the board at uh, the charity arm of Tradecraft. So I've had a, a, a lot of uh, activism. And uh, as a result of that, I, I took a year off journalism and went to work for uh, Tony Blair's Commission for Africa, um, which was the, doc, the, um, the body that prepared the, the groundwork for the Glen Eagles um, G8 summit, where huge advances were made on 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 debt and aid uh, not so much on trade but uh, um so i've had i've i've seen both the the inside of government the lobbying side of things and also the journalistic commentary side of things brilliant thank you so much paul for sharing your experience and expertise with us today and you've had such an interesting and varied career and met some remarkable individuals like you've just mentioned when you started out your career in the beginning, did you always have a passion for social justice and did you feel that that's where your career was going down? 
Uh, not particularly. I'm, I'd, uh, I was very interested in the arts. I was a theatre critic when I started um, in, in journalism. And, um, uh, but I, I'd always, I mean, I was brought up as a Catholic and uh, schooled in the importance of uh, care and compassion. And so I suppose that was a, an underlying thread in my life. So now shall we get into why we're here today to discuss your brilliant book, which um, I'm in the middle of reading, Philanthropy from Aristotle to Zuckerberg. What were your main aims and motivations behind writing this book? Because it's not the first book that you've written in your career. And what do you really hope that the readers gain from it? Well, I've written um, books about uh, social justice issues, about third world debt. I've written a, a book about prison reform and uh, I've written a biography of uh, Pope Francis. So they're all kind of uh, in that ethical religious area. And um, philanthropist Trevor Pears approached me and said he was interested in there being uh, a history of English philanthropy because there hadn't been one for over 40 years. And, um, uh, and he said that he would give me uh, a research grant to, uh, to do two years work on it. And I thought I could get it done in two years, but I was very wrong because it took me six years in the end. It's such a gigantic subject. But um, I approached it with some of that background of, from a kind of a sense of social justice and awareness working in international development that uh, philanthropists like Bill Gates were making a huge impact on um, that field. And also aware of the tension between uh, charity and justice and the the fact that, uh, that that they pulled in broadly the same direction but not always the same direction and there were tensions between them and I thought that writing a book about philanthropy would be a useful way of exploring these. And do you feel that your experience, you mentioned that you worked in Ethiopia in 1984-85, do you think your experience of working on the ground in international development context prepared you well for, for authoring this book? I think it did actually because one of the um, the conclusions that I came to uh, in, in Ethiopia was that uh, it was there was rather a kind of uh, arrogant aloof attitude on our part as the kind of uh, the white westerners coming to help uh, uh, the poor starving Ethiopians and uh, I had a few um, incidents in which I was brought up short, but in a conversation with somebody. And when I realized that I really wasn't treating them as an equal, I was, I was you know, thinking I was bringing greater Western wisdom to bear on them. And they said something which made me realize that no, they had much, um, uh, as much, if not more, to contribute to this conversation than I did. And uh, so that sense of listening to other people and the need for mutual respect and partnership is something that I have uh, had in mind all the way through this study of philanthropy, because I see that a lot of modern philanthropy is deficient in those areas, too top down and too thinking that the rich person knows best. point that a lot of charities and organizations I think even in today's um, 21st century need to bear in mind as well when working in the international development context. Now I wanted to turn to 
a few of the elements and uh, themes of the book. And in your book, you mentioned that philanthropy is not the same thing as altruism, but that there are significant overlaps between the two. And particularly at the beginning of the book, you really delve into this concept by showing that philanthropy is something far more complex, which interweaves all manner of motivations and intentions from the personal to the social, to the political and the economic. Much of the audience um, that listens to this podcast is working within the third sector, within the charity sector and within the philanthropy fundraising world. Can you please elaborate on what you mean by the differences or similarities between philanthropy and altruism and what you found throughout your research? Well, uh, the overlap is that uh, philanthropists like to think that their motives are altruistic and in many cases they, they are. Um, but philanthropy is more complex because it, it, if you look at the history of philanthropy, it's embodied a whole series of different kind of characteristics then you know in, in the, 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 the Greeks it was about social harmony what we'd now call social cohesion your place in, in society the Romans it was much more about patronage you know with bread and circuses and uh, keeping the poor happy by by doling out things to them um, and uh, the uh, through, through, through history that thread of kind of political control, uh, has been seen so you know in, it goes through into the the Elizabethan poor law or the Victorian uh, attitudes of uh, moral superiority the idea that the poor were, were, were in need of moral reform not just of uh, material assistance um, and there is a, a sense of slightly looking down on the poor and in, in a funny way blaming them for their own poverty or uh, holding them responsible for it because they're not uh, they're not really as uh, uh, as clever as the rich people. There was a, an interesting movement in the 19th century called social Darwinism, and this influenced Andrew Carnegie, who's perhaps the biggest philanthropist of the 20th century. And it, basically, it was the idea that the rich were rich because they were cleverer and better than the poor, and that's what had made them rich. And so, when it came to dispensing money, uh, the rich were the people who should decide how it should be spent and poor people should just be jolly lucky that they got any of it. And um, that template, uh, I think, persists through in much of modern philanthropy. And, that, and to, to, to issue a corrective to that is part of what the book tries to do. Another very important point about how different stakeholders within philanthropy need to stay engaged with one another and need to work with one another in order to see the betterment of society. So, so what do you think organisations or charities can learn from this when working with philanthropists to understand that they do have their own motivations and intentions of their giving? Well, to be honest, I've not looked at it from the point of view of the charities. I've looked at it from the point of view of the philanthropists and, the, and, and society's attitude to philanthropists and whether a philanthropists are really in any way accountable for what they do with their money. And of course, it's not just their money, because on a lot of gifts, philanthropists get tax relief. And so if, if a philanthropist is, who pays higher rate tax at 45% uh, is giving a, a, a $100 million, um, they're, they're only giving $65 million, and the other 45 are coming from the taxpayer. So in a sense, 
we should have a say as taxpayers in what happens to that those philanthropic pounds or dollars um and so there are accountability issues which which are important here and what i'm trying to do in the book is to get the, phil, uh, the philanthropists to recognize these and uh, a lot of this will probably be self-evident to people working in the charity sector um but what the book tries to do is to think of ways in which the kind of compassion and care, uh, the empathy side of ch charity, uh, can be re-injected into um, the the idea of, of modern philanthropy, strategic philanthropy, which can be rather cold and inefficient and can go for easy targets uh, rather than dealing with the complexities of people's lives. So that's, that's really what I've been trying to do. And insofar as that helps people working in the third sector, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased about that. And what I found very interesting while reading your book was the way in which you explained the difference of how philanthropy is perceived in different countries, in the UK, across Europe, in the US, and even further afield and internationally. Do you mind touching on that? The United States is, is the biggest philanthropic nation. They give around 2% of their income every year in philanthropy. Uh, the United Kingdom is second. Uh, it's about 0.7% of our national income we give in philanthropy, and that figure hasn't changed much over the years. Um, if you look at, you know, the f there are different types of philanthropy in Europe in the way that there are different types of, of capitalism. Um, the Anglo-Saxon one, um, which we find in the UK and Ireland and, and in the United States, is the one that the book deals with mainly. But if you look at... Um, say, uh, the, um, the, the, the model which holds sway in the Mediter Mediterranean area in, in, in Italy and, uh, and Spain and so forth, uh, the, the, the church uh, is a bigger, is a bigger uh, player in uh, charitable activity there. And although there is you know, theoretically a, um, uh, a separation of church and state, um, the, the third sector doesn't play as big a role in, in inter, interacting between, uh, between those two. Um, if you look at um, the German model, the Rhineland model, I call it, uh, you'll find that um, there's, uh, the state is a far bigger uh, player than anybody else. Uh, and there are third sector um, organizations and the, the, there is the private sector, there are trade unions and they, they have a model of cooperation more than we have here. Um, uh, so very often third sector um, uh, organizations in, in Germany are effectively subcontractors to the state and we have an increased tendency for that to be the case in, uh, in, the, in the United Kingdom. Um, and then there's a, a separate model, which is to do with um, the areas uh, like um, Norway and uh, um, Sweden, that Nordic model. Um, the, 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 the third sector is much more prominent there. And um, they do, they've got a bigger focus on the elimination of poverty than we have. We're, we're better at thinking about wealth creation and, and creating jobs, but they're, they're more focused on distribution. So there, there are these different systems. Now I'd like to turn to the importance of developing expertise and partnerships 
in order to solve some of the social ills in our society. In the book, you make an important point about the importance of expertise and partnerships, that money alone cannot solve some of the world's most pressing issues. For example, you explore GSK's global expertise in research and development of medicines and vaccinations and Save the Children's experience of delivering healthcare for marginalised children and families. And you mentioned that this partnership between GSK and Save the Children has reached over 5 million in the first five years, including 2.8 million children under five in, in 45 countries. I just wanted to ask you to elaborate on why do you think these expertise and partnerships are so important in philanthropy and share some more examples of similar partnerships? Well, I raised that in the context of showing that um, philanthropy has something to learn from um, corporate social responsibility. Uh, in fact, some people call CSR uh, corporate philanthropy. But it really is, um, a it, it's a similar model, but it's a there are different stakeholders involved because there you've got a big charity like, say, the children, and a big pharmaceutical giant like GlaxoSmithKline. And uh, they, they have t teamed up to w use their relevant expertise on, on both sides to, uh, uh, to do the kind of work that you've talked about. There are other examples, you know, where um, the yogurt uh, uh, manufacturers, Danone, uh, teamed up with the Grameen Bank in um, in Bangladesh to develop a low-cost yogurt, uh, uh, and this yogurt provides 30% of a Bangladeshi child's uh, recommended daily nutrients. And so, what you've got there is an example of development agency and a private sector company using their joined expertise to create some kind of shared value, a win-win situation uh, for them both. And um, uh, the idea of business connecting with social progress uh, is something which is more um, uh, has, a, has a longer pedigree in corporate social responsibility. But the lesson of it can be transferred across to philanthropy. That was the point I was making. And it's a really important point that we need to be in partnership with each other in order to solve some of the social ills and use each other's expertise. You mentioned Grameen Bank. Uh, I read uh, the founder of the Grameen Bank's book, book Banker to the Poor by Mohammed Yunus. And as you well know, he's won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006 and set up a very successful programme to benefit particularly women in Bangladesh and use that model across the world as well of microfinance and I just wanted your perspective on on that and issues like that because when we talk about the international development context we often find aid that is not sustainable how, how do you feel about concepts like microfinance and microcredit to support and alleviate some of the social ills that we see in society in order to have sustainable solutions well, I take the view that microfinance is a classic example of, of, of partnership because you are passing down not just money, but you're passing down power to people at the grassroots who often understand better how to deploy them than the, you know, the rich people who, who are, are giving the money. I mean, in the, in the case of Grameen Bank, I use that example in the book to contrast 
philanthropy, old style philanthropy, and more modern philanthropic capitalism, um, saying that uh, the philanthropic capitalism can t uh, tend to intensify the voice of those who've already got substantial influence uh, or access to power. Whereas what you saw with the Grameen Bank was he, uh, Yunus went um, in the 1970s, he obse observed that poor people could never borrow money from banks because they lacked assets to put up as security and a loan. Didn't have, they didn't have land or houses. So he came up with this idea to get around it. And the, the idea was that the bank makes a loan to a small group of friends and the group of friends or neighbors, <clears throat> they allocate the money to one individual to, to do some uh, development work with. And the social pressure that occurs in the group ensures that the individual pays the loan back. And um, because if the individual doesn't pay the loan back, then the next individual in the group doesn't get it. So there's a, there's a peer group pressure. And uh, Yunus went to the Ford Foundation office in Bangladesh and persuaded them to put up nearly a million dollars to to back the idea. And, uh, and that was the start of the, you know, what turned out to be the microfinance movement. But the Ford Foundation is often singled out by modern philanthro-capitalist enthusiasts as being kind of old-fashioned and lacking strategic thinking. But what you see here with this example of Eunice and the Grameen Bank is that because they were able to respond to an initiative which arose from, from the grassroots rather than arising from the philanthropist, uh, something new was created which has been transformative in international development. So that's a lesson for philanthropists listen to people on uh, on the receiving end because they often know more about what will work than you do absolutely couldn't agree with you more there paul and why do you think that hasn't been the case it seems obvious from my perspective working within the charity sector for a number of years now that we must listen to our beneficiaries our service users why do you think some philanthropists or the perception at least that philanthropists don't always listen to the end user. I think it's because a lot of these um, highly successful philanthropists, especially in uh, you know in in modern America, uh, and it, well in, in the UK too, uh, people who've uh, uh, worked in hedge funds or who've developed um, high tech expertise in in digital uh, areas, they, they they and 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 they're very driven individuals and they've got great uh, business acumen and entrepreneurial drive and uh, they have created these these fantastic fortunes through the application of those qualities and they just assume uh, without really thinking about it that because they're so clever at uh, dreaming up these projects to uh, revolutionize their area and to make all this money that if they could just apply their minds to these social problems they'd be able to sort them out as well and the lesson of philanthropy is that very often they can't. If you look at the example of Bill Gates, for instance, he spent $2 billion early in his career on an education project, which he ran for several years. And then one day he called together all the big educationalists in the United States and announced that he was scrapping this because he decided it didn't work and he was going to do something entirely different. Now, for, for Bill Gates, that's just an interesting uh, failed uh, experiment. But for the kids who who were in the schools which where the failed experiment happened you know that was lost years in their lives and so um th there's a there can be a kind of 
philanthropic arrogance which uh, philanthropists need to guard against. That leads us nicely on to the next topic, which is the fact that there's been a huge expansion in philanthropic giving across the world. In your book, you mentioned that in 2018, Harvard University established a new global philanthropy report, which showed that nearly three quarters of the world's 260,000 philanthropic foundations have been established in 38 countries in the last 25 years alone. And you also mentioned that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has a bigger budget than 70% of the world's nations and spends more annually on global health than the government of Germany, which I found remarkable. But at the same time, while all of this philanthropy giving is being increased across the globe, you still see where programs are failing because of the inadequate analysis of the root causes of issues. Or as you've already mentioned, an overconfidence of philanthropists, believing that qualities which brought them success in the business world can be transferred to complex social situations. So I just wanted your perspective, if you could elaborate on that a little bit further and ways to overcome that problem. So if you look at Mark Zuckerberg's, one of his first big ventures into philanthropy in 2010 was he gave $100 million to a flagship flagship. Uh, reform, education reform project in um, in Newark, New Jersey, just across the river from New York. And he thought this would be like kind of a pilot for reforming education throughout America. And he later admitted he knew very little about urban education policy. He'd never even been to Newark. He'd just given the money because the two local politicians who turned up with the plan were very persuasive characters. But in fact, it was another big flop. And um, Zuckerberg is now engaged in projects where he actually goes out of his way to say, well, we're listening to the local people here. We're listening to the parents. We're listening to the teachers. And what he's not actually saying in, in so many words is because we got it wrong last time. So it, it's, it's, it's the, that kind of uh, misplaced confidence, uh, which, uh, which is what I'm talking about. And the way that philanthro, uh, philanthropists can guard against that is by uh, having a bit more humility and listening to people and uh, respecting the idea that partnership uh, is, is something that they will learn and gain from, not just that they will kind of uh, concede. And Gates, if you look at his career, he has listened and learned all the way through and he's adapted and changed. And Melinda Gates in particular has been very important in that because Bill's very kind of scientific, very data driven. Um, uh, and Melinda understands there's no point in coming up with a brilliant technical solution if you can't persuade the people on the ground to use it. Yeah. So uh, if the, the problem uh, on the ground is that people think that the vaccine is some kind of Western plot to undermine their local culture or religion, uh, it's no good just saying it's a wonderful vaccine. You've got to w learn how to talk to them. And in, in, in lots of cases, you're talking to you to religious leaders and working through religious leaders and communities in, in, in situations like that. And Melinda gave a very good example on the radio uh, a while ago. Uh, she was talking about how they decided they needed to try and um, 
block the uh, the transmission of AIDS in India so that it didn't get uh, to the to the same um, epidemic scale as it was in Africa. So they decided what they needed to do was to to get uh, sex workers to persuade their um, uh, their clients to use condoms all the time. But when they went to the sex workers, the sex workers said, "Well, you know, we can't we can't possibly do that because." At the moment, we're living in fear of uh, a lot of our clients because because they're so violent and they beat us up and and they said we can't deal with condoms and AIDS until we've dealt with violence. And Melinda said we realised we had to help them address this issue of violence and have some kind of program to uh, to to combat combat that before we could come in with our our good idea about uh, condoms and AIDS. So that was a good example of of how they've learned. To listen absolutely and it is that learning process that is critical for philanthropists but also charities and organizations working in the third sector having worked in the sector for a number of years i know sometimes as a sector we don't always listen to our beneficiaries and service users as we should but we cannot come up with relevant solutions if we're not listening to them and working with them which is about the partnership working that you're talking about and what I really like about your book, Paul, is at the end of every chapter, you interview well-known individuals within the space that the, that the chapter talks about. What I wanted to hear from you is what interviews did you find particularly insightful and what learnings did you take from these? Because there are fascinating insights into different areas of philanthropy. Well, uh, the, I mean, the, every interviewee had some something uh, uh, interesting and unique to, to say. The way I structured it was that, so I would have a chapter about uh, about Jewish philanthropy, and then I, I interviewed uh, Rabbi Lord Sachs about J- Jewish philanthropy in a way which was partly reflecting the historical nature of the of the chapter, but also bringing it up to date and talking about how it worked in 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 the modern world. I did the same with um, Rowan Williams talking about Christian philanthropy, Archbishop Rowan Williams. And I did the same with uh, Nasser Hagamid, who is the uh, chief executive of the Islamic Relief, which is the biggest Muslim charity in the world. And all of those were illuminating uh, for the light that they threw on on the material that went before them, but also on, 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 um, on one another. So you could start to see the real commonalities between Jewish and Muslim uh, ph- philanthropy, uh, something which might not have been so 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 obvious. Uh, then some of the interviewees were philanthropists themselves, and I learned a lot about the motivation, uh, uh, what motivated them to give. And um, a lot of them clearly are motivated by something personal in their lives. You know, uh, a disease that their mother had, they want to put research into, or if they are particularly you know, keen opera fans, they want to commission new new operas or whatever. So a lot of it is very personal. But when you probe down through it, the actual trigger for some of the big philanthropic gestures or the start of their philanthropic uh, view of life um, can be quite moving and, uh, and, and can be... Um, uh, uh, phrased or rooted in a, in a way which is not what you're expecting. Uh, and then other interviews were with, uh, I talked to um, uh, 
Eliza Manning and Buller, who used to be the head of MI5, and now she runs the Welcome Foundation, which is the fourth biggest charity in the world, a medical charity. And I talked to her very interestingly about um, accountability. And, you know, she's got all this huge, huge amount of money at her disposal. You know, who, 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 who uh, is the check upon her um, to say to her, are you spending this correctly? And how it's quite difficult to, because there no, there's no election, there's no government, there's no voters, there's no general public. It's, it's, it's handed on. And so they have to find a way of building in their own sense of responsibility and accountability. That was a very interesting conversation. Then the, I, I talked to people like Bob Geldof and um, Lenny Henry about comic relief. Um, we were talking about, uh, in the case of Geldof, I was talking about um, John Howard, who was the first man in England to be called a philanthropist. We think of philanthropists as people who give away large sums of money. But the first person was Howard, and he was a philanthropist uh, who gave all his time to uh, prison reform uh, in this country and throughout Europe. Uh, and in that era, a philanthropist was a kind of activist, an agitator. Um, William Wilberforce, the anti-slavery campaigner, he was a, called a philanthropist in his day. And so when you look at someone like Geldof campaigning on world poverty, you realize that he, you know, we think that's a modern phenomenon, you know, celebrity philanthropy or celebrity activism. Uh, but in fact, it's rooted in this same tradition. So he had things to say, which reflected interestingly on, on the, the, the Enlightenment people like uh, Howard and Wilberforce. And then Lenny Henry was talking about the modern era in which we've seen a kind of democratization of philanthropy, things like crowdfunding, but also these big telethons like Comic Relief, Children in Need, uh, allow ordinary people access to, to philanthropy. And they have different priorities to uh, the big philanthropists. And that, so that, that, that sets up a, another interesting dynamic. And it, it, it throws light on this relationship between um, philanthropy and democracy and philanthropy assists democracy in some ways but in other ways it pulls against it and it undermines it so um, I mean it would be easy to write a book that says isn't philanthropy marvelous or isn't philanthropy terrible but the reality is that there are good and bad sides to it and I try to explore them in a, in a nuanced way so that we can work out what it is that can actually make philanthropy better. That's a really good point, a number of good points you raised there, Paul, particularly around what we think of as a philanthropist. It's not somebody who just gives out large sums of cash, but it's also somebody who raises awareness and talks about issues in a way that haven't been spoken about before. And we see that quite a lot. There's many examples that we can allude to, as you've already mentioned, in the case of Bob Geldof. Uh, I mean, in the in the uh, the early Victorian era and in the 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 uh, the, the the late en Enlightenment era, a lot there was a lot of giving by middle class people um, by subscription. So rather in the way that you know limited companies were first founded in that era, called, they called them joint stock companies. Everybody put a bit of money in, and uh, and 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 then they, you did something as a group. Uh, so philanthropy can be done in that way, and and it brings up different priorities. Um, and uh, uh, 
that throws light on what we call conventional philanthropy and, and makes, you, makes you reassess it. So there are, there are lots of ways in which all these different aspects um, illuminate and assist other parts of philanthropy. And what is your view about philanthropists working together? You, we, we spoke about a bit earlier about people using relevant expertise and experiences to solve common issues and problems in society. What is your view of a group of philanthropists coming together and solving some of these issues? Well, there are, I mean, there are alliances that, that are on things like uh, climate change, where a lot of philanthropists get together and try and uh, fund some of these issues to raise awareness and to make good the deficiencies of governments who have very short term um, perspectives, because they've just got to look, you know, to how, how, how's the next election going to go. Um, and, and that can make them short sighted. The philanthropists can try and inject a more long term perspective into that. Or philanthropists can, uh, Richard Branson has an interesting um, experiment or phenomenon. Every year he gets a load of philanthropists together on his island in the, in, in the Caribbean and they kind of brainstorm together different uh, ideas of how you can do philanthropy. And they have people uh, who have been invited to kind of come and present a proposal um, and so someone will come with some left field idea like if we could get a satellite which could detect methane uh, in different parts of the world, then we'd be able to see where the uh, the ice was melting and uh, and the methane was. Uh, so that would be a way of combating climate change. Now, if you went to the government and said that they think that's a bit kind of uh, left field. Um, we're not going to put public money into that. And there's no incentive for a company to do that because there's no one going to make any money out of it. But a group of philanthropists can fund that and it may, it may be a waste of time or it may throw up something that nobody ever thought of. Innovation is the key role of philanthropy. You touched on a little bit earlier around the tensions between philanthropy and the realm of policymaking and democracy. But I just wanted to delve a little bit further into that subject. Can you explain for our listeners what the tensions actually are in the first place? And what can be done, if anything, to ensure that there is a separation between philanthropy, policymaking and democracy? It needs to be an interaction which is balanced because the examples I've given you where a philanthropist says, I've got this good idea, let's do this in education. And uh, the, the local authority, the local government uh, may think, well, well, that's not what we were going to spend our money on. But if, if, if they're going to come in and put all this money and we better kind of uh, we better go along with it and back that. And then some alternative plan that had been proposed by local people, whatever, doesn't get done because there's no money for it. Yeah. So there you've got the personal power of a, very, a rich person swaying the way that money, uh, which it belongs to taxpayers, is spent. And we've already said the example of tax relief and how uh, tax relief in, in, you know, enables to if a philanthropist who wants to give a gigantic donation to the Royal Opera House or something, um, a good part of that donation is coming from people who might not like opera and would rather that it went to, you know, staging West End musicals or playing uh, football matches or whatever. So there's a, there's a, a, a discrepancy between um, the, uh, the, the way that democracy works and the way that philanthropy works. And uh, you, you've got to be aware of that. 
otherwise you can get it completely out of balance. It, it needs to be held in balance. And something that's come to my mind when you're talking about philanthropy and the importance of philanthropy, certainly moving forward, is the impact of COVID-19 on philanthropists and their giving. I'm not sure when, if you had took that into consideration when writing your book, or if your book was uh, written before the, uh, the impact of COVID-19, but what would you say, having spoken to philanthropists, having spoken to people in this area, how do you think COVID-19 has impacted that area? Well, I think philanthropists have done rather well on COVID-19. They've spent about $14 billion so far, and they've targeted, uh, and Bill Gates has said uh, he's, he's going to spend billions uh, building uh, seven different uh, factories to produce seven different vaccines uh, and produce them even before it's known whether uh, they work or not. And, uh, and then you know, in the hope that of the seven, at least two of them will work. Um, that kind of uh, innovation and that kind of agility um, is, 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 is what's been lacking in, uh, in the government responses to, uh, to the whole pandemic, which has been kind of shambolic and uh, um, uh, smacking of incompetence. So you can see the strength of philanthropy over, over government on, on COVID. What's been thrown up by uh, the pandemic it's been um, an example of how uh, philanthropy can promote altruism as well as it can um, promote the kind of selfish interests of an elite so you've got uh, some political leaders been going around trying to buy up all the all the vaccines and all the medicines for their country and make sure we've got our, ours. Uh, you, then you've got the philanthropists saying, no, we, the priority has to be getting the medicines to the people who are poorest, because if they, if, if, if the virus sweeps through them and they, unchecked, it will be a reservoir for the virus and it'll just come back to, 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 to bite uh, the rich world, even if the rich world's managed to kind of stave off the first, first waves of it. So what, what, you, what you've seen uh, is in the coronavirus is uh, a rise of some kinds of selfishness in a panic buying and that kind of political um, uh, manipulation by by some some political leaders. On the other hand, you've also seen these fantastic uh, examples of mutual aid with local people, you know, who met each other for the first time, going out on the streets to clap the NHS, forming groups uh, or just acting as individuals. Uh, helping each other out, going and picking up old people's medicines, um, doing things that they can't otherwise do. So we've seen, we've seen the selfish and the selfless side of uh, society on display, and philanthropy can tap into uh, either of those. It can either carry on in in the ways in which it's been kind of addressing issues which have not really um, uh, dealing with issues which have not really addressed. Uh, the inequality, which is the big problem in, in, in the modern world, uh, or it can uh, foster some of these grassroots groups uh, which, which can you know, intercede between the state and, and, and the market and assist individuals uh, who, who are in need of assistance. So uh, 
we end with the question that we began with, mm. which is, you know, which way is philanthropy going to go? Is it going to do, is it going to go towards compassion or is it going to go towards control? That's a really good summary, Paul. And in your experience and expertise in this area, writing this book over a number of years, where do you think that's more likely to go down? I think it's an open question. And um, I think uh, you can see signs of, of, of both. If you look at, uh, I end the book by talking about Mark Zuckerberg's uh, new financial instruments that he uses for his philanthropy. He hasn't got a charitable foundation in the way that, you know, everybody from Andrew Carnegie to Bill Gates has had. He set up a limited company and put money into donor advised funds, which are very uh, opaque um, ways of, of handling uh, charitable giving. And it's not clear from that whether he's going to end up with a more focused kind of philanthropy, which will enable him to, to do things like put money into commercial companies that will develop new forms of solar energy, um, or whether he's just going to use it as a way of kind of uh, keeping control of, of the things that interest him and, and keeping philanthropy as an expression of, of one man's particular whims and interests. Um, so it's an open question you know, which way is philanthropy going to go? And uh, um, I, I don't presume to give the answer, but I do give some individual areas of activity where uh, we can bring the strengths of the heart of compassionate philanthropy and marry it with the strengths of the head of uh, strategic philanthropy and produce something better. Thank you, Paul. It's been amazing to hear you speak I'm so passionately about philanthropy and we really appreciate your time and sharing your expertise with us today so thank you very much it's a pleasure I hope I've done justice to the book it's a big book and there's a lot more in it than I've man managed to be able to get across so I hope people will go out and buy it thank you very much Paul it was great to speak to Paul today to explore some of the key themes of his book philanthropy from Aristotle to Zuckerberg. I hope that you found the conversation insightful. There were a number of topics that we discussed in today's podcast, but there were a couple of key takeaways for me that organisations can certainly reflect on. Firstly, the importance of listening and learning from our beneficiaries and service users in order to develop effective solutions which solve their problems. And secondly, working in partnerships with organisations with common values and purpose, sharing skills, experiences and expertise. For example, we touched on Grameen Bank and how they use the idea of microcredit to uplift millions out of poverty. Thank you very much for listening and that leads me to thank our corporate sponsors, our platinum sponsor, Charity People, for enabling us to share insights, expertise and best practice across the third sector. Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Aksumit for our website design. You can check it out at www.charitychat.org.uk. And Forest of Fools, who have been playing throughout and are playing us out now. Mm -hmm.